0: reading is chapter 11, verse 27, to chapter 12, verse 3. So chapter 11, verse 27, on page 13. So let's have a look at that. This is the account of Terah. Terah became the father of Abraham, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran became the father of Lot. While his father Terah was still alive, Haran died in Ur of the Chaldeans in the land of his birth. Abraham and Nahor both married. The name of Abraham's wife was Sarai and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah. She was the daughter of Haran, the father of both Milcah and Iscah. Now, Sarai was barren. She had no children. Terah took his son Abram, his grandson Lot, son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, the wife of his son Abram, and together they set out from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. Terah lived 205 years, and he died in Haran. The Lord had said to Abraham, leave your country, your people and your father's household and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse and All peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Well, let me pray. Father, we thank you for this part of your word in the Bible. We thank you for the book of Genesis, for the the account of Abraham's life that we have before us over the coming weeks. And we pray that you would speak to us today through this. Help us to see what it means to trust in you, to trust in Jesus. Through these words here, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So has the new year begun with a few resolutions maybe, whether they've been verbalised or just sort of internal sense of a new start? If you're looking for new ways to procrastinate, which I'm always interested in, spend some time on Google Trends gives you graphs of things that people search for around the world over time. A particularly interesting one is the graphs of the number of people searching for five keywords associated with New Year's resolutions. So those five words are fitness, diet, healthy, yoga, and gym. And there's a graph for these terms that goes back about 15 years on Google Trends. And they all have exactly the same shape, these graphs. The best way to describe it is like an ECG heart monitor readout. I'm not an expert, but that's what it looks like to me. In other words, there's a regular kind of spike, and then there's a flat bit. And of course, the high spike comes in January each year. And then this is then followed by a steep decline and plateau for the rest of the year before it hits January and it spikes again. And what do these spikes every January tell us? Well, they tell us, surely, that a change of date does not equate to a change of heart or a change of willpower. If on the 31st of December you were a meat eating couch potato, then on the 1st of January the chances of you transforming effortlessly into a vegan fitness guru are vanishingly small. And there's a slight inevitability about the fact that you will be Googling the same search terms in a year's time, just like you did a year ago and the year before that. See, so often what we find is that human attempts to turn over a new leaf, to change, to be different, lead only to disappointment and frustration. As we come to this section of Genesis, this term which covers the life of Abraham, we have in these verses in front of us today a new start, a new beginning. but Not for a human plan, but for God's plan. Now, why look at this at all? What relevance could the life of an ancient Iraqi migrant have for the 21st century? There might be a few resonances for today or a number of answers you might want to give to that. But the, the New Testament has three main answers to why Abraham is really worth looking at for Christians today. One is that he is regularly called the father of God's people in the Bible and of course he is ethnically the father of those who are ethnically Jewish but we heard in the reading from Galatians that it is those who believe like Abraham believed who are children of Abraham. He is our father. If we're believing in Jesus today then we are part of his family. The second reason we need to know about Abraham is that Abraham is an example of faith because it was Abraham's faith that led to God declaring him righteous. So we need to have faith like Abraham had faith. And the intriguing thing we're going to see with Abraham is that he was anything but a perfect model or a perfect example in his life. He did plenty of morally odd and dubious things, just like we do, if we're honest. But Abraham is held up as an example of what faith persevering faith looks like. And then the third reason to look at Abraham is sometimes emphasised less than the others, but it's equally, if not more important. Abraham is what we call a type of Christ. A type is a prefiguring, a paradigm. In in, in his life and in what he did, there are lots of ways that Abraham is like (laughs) Jesus. And the main way is in how he secures a covenant with God For us, on the basis of his faithful obedience, God makes a covenant which benefits all his descendants, his children, which is all Christians. In the same way that Jesus' faithful obedience secures the covenant of grace that we enjoy today. Now, all of that is a bit brief, and we're going to see all those things coming out over the coming weeks. But those are the three main reasons to look at Abraham. He's our father. We are in his family if we're Christians. He is an example in faith. He is a type of Christ. But this, this evening we start at the beginning with this fresh start. You can divide up the book of Genesis into sections that begin with the phrase that you see in verse 27 of chapter 11. It says, this is the account of, or literally, these are the generations of so-and-so. You might say, this is the family history of so-and-so. And And you get this again and again through the book of Genesis. It starts in chapter 2, then chapter 6 with Noah. Uh, There's a few others in between, but the main sections of the book are divided by this phrase. And they help us to see that, broadly speaking, the book of Genesis divides into chapters 1 to 11, which you might call the prehistory. Uh, then chapters 12 to 25, which is called the account of Terah, but actually is dead by verse 32. And then you get the, all the f- chapters up to ver- chapter 25 is all focused on Terah's son, Abraham. And then chapters 26 to 36 are called the account of Isaac, who's Abraham's son, but actually they are mostly about Isaac's son, Jacob. Okay? And then chapters 37 to 50 are called the account of Jacob, but maybe you've guessed it, they're mostly about his son. Who's his son? Do you know? Joseph, exactly one of his sons. And the big question going through the whole book of Genesis after the first three chapters, after we have creation and then fall, the big question after that is, what will it take to undo the sin of Adam and Eve that messed up God's good creation, that brought evil into the world? What will it take to defeat the serpent and his lies? Can it be done with human resolution, whether at the beginning of a new year or any other time? Will it just take a bit of hard work and grit and determination? Well, as we'll see, it's not gone very well on that front in chapters 1 to 11, but now something new happens. God has a plan to sort out the problem. And as we look at this new start in chapter 11, verse 27... We're looking at the beginning of God's plan to save the world from sin and evil, not through human resolution, but through God's initiative. So let's see that first of all. If you look on the purple (laughs) handout, if you haven't seen it already, you've got the points. Firstly, the beginning of God's plan. Paganism and powerlessness. Paganism and powerlessness. Well, as, As we look at this new starts, the, the, the striking thing in these verses is who these people are that God starts with. The chapters following the creation of the world have been what has been called an avalanche of sin. Selfishness and disobedience, murder, sexual transgression. And all that leads to the watery judgment of the flood and then a new start And and, and Noah is this new start, and it all looks promising, but no, it turns out Noah is just as much a sinner as his forebears. And finally, in chapter 11, the Tower of Babel illustrates human beings' attempts to build civilization for themselves without reference to God. So they build this massive tower that's meant to be uh, reaching up to heaven, and God scatters them over the world, no longer able to communicate and continue their godless scheming. So by the time we get to verse 27 in chapter 11, we're not holding out high hopes for the family of terror. Now, they live in Ur, which would have been more familiar to the original readers, but it's in, in, it's in modern-day Iraq. So maybe Moses has been, there. No, I don't know, but it's not far from the city of Basra, and, uh, which most of us have heard of. Now, a 100 years ago, the great archaeologist, Sir Leonard Woolley, i sure you're very familiar with him, household name, he excavated the city of Ur. And they found all kinds of uh, evidence of its pagan roots in, in the kind of rituals and human sacrifice and things that had gone on. And they dug up what they called the Great Death Pit, where Queen Puabi was buried following her death. And her body was carefully decorated with gold and silver and precious stones. And arranged around her were the bodies of 73 unfortunate servants who had been sacrificed to lie dead with her in her tomb. And she'd been buried with the clear belief in an ancient pagan version of the afterlife. So her servants were there ready to go as soon as uh, something happened, but unfortunately only to be dug up again all those years later in 1920, still lying in her grave. But this, this was a deeply pagan and godless place. And here is Abram living a normal life in Ur with his wife Sarai. And we're told straight up, she is barren. Verse 30. And in fact, we're told it twice. She was barren, she had no children. They underlined for us. And it's underlined for us, too, in Abraham's name. So it's late, you know this thing about his name? His name is later changed to Abraham, chapter 17, and we'll find out why later. But, um, and we refer to him often as Abraham, so we may well call him Abraham, even when he hasn't yet got that name, but that's how we call him today. But his original name, Abraham, simply means exalted father. Now imagine how it feels to have that name and yet be childless. It's a kind of anti nominative determinism. You know, in a culture that measures success by children and descendants, here is an exalted father who has no children. Now not being able to have children is painful enough in any culture. And it's the same today, but for these people this was theologically significant as well because when Adam and Eve sinned God cast them out of the garden in judgment but he promised that one of Eve's descendants a son would come and would finally crush the serpent's head and so since then we've been waiting for that descendant to come with every new generation. There's a fresh start, a new possibility. And you know these kind of genealogies that you get through, through, particularly in Genesis and in other parts of the Bible, you read them and you think, I can't even pronounce these names. You know Why, why are these here? What's the point of them? Well, the, the point is, that particularly for the original readers, they're reading this and they're thinking, oh, look, another son, another child. Is this the one who's going to come and crush the serpent? But again and again, they are disappointed. And now this family are unable to produce any child at all. So this is an utterly unpromising place to start this fresh start in the history of God's people. God hasn't gone to the sort of obvious godly uh, people, God-fearing, God-seeking. He's gone to the pagans with their ritual and human sacrifice. And he's gone to this childless couple. And yet so often when human plans end and all hope is lost... God's plans begin. And maybe as the new year begins, we're still at the peak of the graph that I was talking about, you know, feeling confident about our new goals and priorities and, yeah, everything's going well with a new fitness regime and all that, or maybe we've already discovered that things are harder to achieve than we hoped. Maybe we're more aware than ever, more than that, of the old year coming with us into the new We need to know that the people God uses in his plans are the most unlikely. There's a poem you might have heard before, I don't know the source, but it goes like this. Jacob was a cheater, Peter had a temper, David had an affair, Noah got drunk, Jonah ran from God, Paul was a murderer, Gideon was insecure, Miriam was a gossiper, Martha was a worrier, Thomas was a doubter, Sarah was impatient, Elijah was moody, Moses stuttered, Zacchaeus was too short, Abraham was old, and Lazarus was dead. God doesn't call the qualified, he qualifies the called. Now, do you get the point? Now, of course, Abraham and all those others that we've just listed, they all had a unique role in God's plans, and we're not going to be called to be the father or the mother of many nations, but the, the point really is about God. more than about the people that he uses you see god prefers to work with powerlessness and weakness not strength a scottish minister called james stewart said in love's service only the wounded soldiers can serve only the wounded soldiers and serve when the, when, because when we do things and we achieve things out of our own strength the temptation is to take the credit for ourselves and to feel self-sufficient think yeah I've got everything nailed down everything's fine I don't need anything and I certainly really don't need God but when the context is our own powerlessness and hopelessness and we just think, I can't do this I am weak well, it's obvious the credit must go to God. Abraham was only at the beginning of his journey. He would change and he would grow and he would mature in all kinds of ways through his experience. But God started with him here, a powerless pagan who didn't even know God. So whatever the new year is starting with, take heart, the beginning of God's plan to save the world started with a pagan and powerless family. Then, secondly, the pattern of God's plan. We see in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 12, the pattern of God's plan. God's rule over God's people in God's place. The the 20th century Christian leader, John Stott, called these verses the most unifying text of the whole Bible. most unifying text of the whole Bible because, he said, God's saving purpose is encapsulated in it namely to bless the whole world through Christ, who was Abraham's seed. And then he says, the rest of the Bible is an unfolding of it, and subsequent history has been a fulfilment of it. He continues, we ourselves would not be followers of Jesus today if it were not for this text. We are beneficiaries of the promise God made to Abraham about 4,000 years ago. So what's he saying? What does he mean? He's saying, here in these verses, we see the pattern for God's saving plan spelt out. In in the reading we had from Galatians, we heard Paul talking about these verses. Do you remember what he said? Did you hear it? He said that God was announcing the gospel in advance to Abraham. This is the beginning of the gospel. This is the beginning of the good news about Jesus. And in fact, you can read the whole Bible through this grid and see how this pattern is there at every stage. In the Garden of Eden, we have God's people, Adam and Eve, in God's place, the garden under his loving rule. But they rebel against that. They're cast out of God's place. But now God steps in again to make it Possible for his people to be in his place under his rule. And if you've ever done a Bible overview, and there's a really excellent one that Andy Palmer did on the, on the St. John's website, it's a sort of 10-session one I've had to listen, really helpful. Um, you'll, you, when you do a Bible overview like that, you'll, you'll know that this theme can be traced through the rest of the Old Testament and all the way into the New So that finally, at the end of the book of Revelation, this is exactly what we see. God's people, millions upon millions, in God's place, the new heavens and the new earth, still under his loving rule. And this here, in verses 1 and 2, sets the pattern for what that rescue plan is going to look like. And again, it starts with God making the first move. He doesn't wait for Abraham to come to him. He goes to Abraham, the pagan. And he tells him to leave his country and to go to the land he would show him. What does he say? He says, verse 2, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. Who's in charge here? Who's, who's making this happen? Well, it's God. Abraham will become a great nation because God makes him a great nation. He will enter the land because God will put him there. And more than that, what an extraordinary thing to say to a couple who have thus far been unable to have children. Not only will you have descendants, but these descendants will be a great nation. What a ridiculous thing to say. It's like someone coming to me and saying, Tom, you're going to be on Strictly Come Dancing next year. You may not be a celebrity, but that's all going to change in the next ten months. Now let me tell you, not being a celebrity is the least of the reasons why I would not be suitable for Strictly Come Dancing unless there's a kind of two left feet category. But they say, no, Tom, you're you're not just going to appear on it, but you're going to win it with a perfect 40 points from the judges in the final evening. Well, miracles can happen, but that is what it would take. And that's how it is for Abraham, as he hears this from God. Your descendants are going to be a great nation, you and barren Sarah. So this is totally God's initiative. It's not something Abraham could bring about himself or even dream up for himself. And can you see that as God takes this initiative, he is undoing all the things that have gone wrong so far in the book of Genesis. You know, where human beings have rebelled against God's rule, he's bringing them back under it where God's people have been cast out of their land, out of the Garden of Eden, where they've been scattered far and wide after Babel, where they've become a multitude of peoples who are at war with one another, he is creating one people in the land that he will give them. He's undoing it, do you see? At the beginning of this new year, this is a God of salvation that we can trust, that we can come to. See, our our instinct is to think, I've got to somehow sort out the problem. Whatever the issue is, I've got to do it. And in the gospel that these verses point to, God says to us, no, you can't. You can't better yourself by yourself. You need to come to me. You need to come to Jesus. Come under God's loving rule. So what should I do this new year? What should you do this new year? Well, come under his rule. So our plan to read the New Testament in a year together this uh, this year, that, that's a way of doing that. It's not as a kind of box-ticking exercise, not so we can pat each other on the back and say, well done, you know, read the New Testament, tick that. It's a way of living in relationship with the God who has a plan to rule lovingly over his people in his world. So do join us in that. But do you notice at this stage, Abraham doesn't know where this land is that God is taking him to. He's just going to have to trust God and see where he takes him. Being obedient to God and trusting him meant doing that even when the future was uncertain. We'll see next week more about the the response that Abraham makes. But again, what are the things that are weighing on your mind and your heart this beginning of this year? See, God chose Abraham even though there was nothing remarkable or different about him apart from his lack of qualifications, and he said, leave your family and go, and later I will show you where. See, so often we want a road map and we want a clear destination so we can do the route planning ourselves, but it's as if God says, just get in the car, start driving, and I'll tell you where we're going on the way. Issues at work, issues at home, issues with an unbelieving friend or spouse, issues with money, well, can we trust him today and live in obedience to him today without necessarily knowing the outcome today? That's what he asked us to do. That's the pattern. God's rule over God's people in God's place. And then thirdly and finally, the purpose of God's plan. Blessing to all people everywhere. And this is where God spells out how all this stuff with Abraham is still relevant to us today, nearly 4,000 years later, in a totally different country, a totally different culture. Because you, know, you might think this is all a bit specific, a bit narrow. You know, why did God focus on one man? Isn't that a, bit of a funny thing to do? Why did he focus on one nation and one land? Actually, isn't that why we've got all these problems in the Middle East now? Because of this? Well, you know, wouldn't it have been better to avoid singling out a particular nation? Well, verse 3 tells us, That the purpose of this plan was never purely for the benefit of a single nation. What did he say? Whoever blesses Abraham's nation would be blessed. Whoever curses would be cursed. The offspring of Abraham, in other words, would have an effect on the whole world. And all peoples would be blessed through him. Do you see, right from the start, God's people were to have a missionary concern that took them beyond their own borders into the world beyond And the reading from Galatians spelt that out further. So let me just read a bit of that again. Chapter 3 in Galatians. Uh, Listen to this. He says, understand then that those who believe are children of Abraham. The scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announced the gospel in advance to Abraham. What is the gospel that was announced in advance to Abraham? What does Paul say? Well, it's this. It's all nations will be blessed through you this is chapter 12 verse 3 so he concludes those who have faith are blessed along with Abraham the man of faith so do you see what he's saying it's not merely uh, being a physical descendant of Abraham that makes you a child of Abraham it is faith in the same promises that were made to Abraham and when we put our faith in those promises this promise of verse 3 is fulfilled All nations, all types of people from every nation, language and culture can be included in this promise. And Paul then explains how this is possible. Through the seed, through the offspring of Abraham, the only faithful descendant, through his death, we are redeemed. So, chapter 3, verse 14, he redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham, the one we're reading about here, might come to the Gentiles, that's most of us through Christ Jesus so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit, which means coming under God's rule in our own lives. That is why God. That is why Jesus died in order to bring about these promises and open them up to the whole world. And so we today can be included in these promises first made to Abraham. So God's blessing has come to us through trusting in Jesus, through the fulfilment of this verse. And if it's come to us, then like for God's people then, it needs to go out through us. The story of the rest of the Old Testament was largely a story of God's people failing to live up to this glorious task of bringing God's blessing beyond their, their borders. There were you know, some notable exceptions along the way, but again and again, Israel was more concerned with inward-looking identity issues than outward-looking mission. All that changed with Jesus, but it's the same today, isn't it? The church today can can still forget that missionary purpose. We can still forget that in our own lives. We can be more interested in our own welfare rather than that of the world around us. You know, it's been said many times, the church is the only organisation that exists primarily for the benefit of its non-members. And as we assess the way that we're spending our time and what we prioritise at the beginning of this new year, let's make, time, let's make sure there's time in our diaries and in our prayers for those who don't know Jesus, as well as for those who do. In our, in our vision for St. John's that we launched in November, we've had that statement that we want to be transformed by God's grace and equipped by his word to serve. And where do we want to serve? Not, not first and foremost in the church, but in The world. When we arrive at work tomorrow morning or whenever it might be, we are still the church. We're still doing the work of the church. So, how are we bringing the blessing of the gospel to those around us? So, that is the beginning of the life of Abraham. God stepping into the world to take the initiative, to say to us in our powerlessness, you can't do this by yourselves. Don't put your hope in your own initiatives and resolutions and self-determination. Put your hope in the God whose plan began with Abraham, whose plan has been fulfilled in Christ, whose plan is open to all people everywhere, including us, right here, right now, to put our trust in the Saviour to whom these verses point and trust him with our whole lives. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this extraordinary plan that began with Abraham, as you called him out of this godless place, and in a situation of hopelessness and powerlessness. Thank you that you were taking the initiative, not just to turn his life around, but turn the world around, to redeem the world, to redeem us from sin and evil. Thank you for Jesus who came in fulfilment of these promises and through whom we can find access into your people, into relationship with you and we pray that through us, all peoples that we come into contact with in our lives in this city would be blessed as they hear the gospel. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.